Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He was despised and rejected of men, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearer is done. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was abused for our iniquities. And through his wounds, we are healed. The last words that Christ spoke on the cross, it is completed, it is finished, it is done. Now, he didn't say, I am finished. That's what most people might say as they were dying beyond what would appear to be their control. <laughs> it's over for me. That's not what he said. He said, it is finished. What did he mean? What was he talking about when the last thing that this eternal Son of God said on the cross when he said it is finished. That's the gist of my message today. What did he mean and what does it mean to you and I today? It is the same Greek word, it is finished, that they have found written on ancient papyrus that was a receipt for a tax bill and it said paid in full. It is a word that speaks to us about redemption. It is a word that speaks to us about the power of sin having been broken. That forgiveness is made available to mankind through the death of Jesus Christ. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant that there, the way to reconcile God and man who were separated from the Garden of Eden forward, that way has been made, it is finished. Old Testament prophecy about Christ the Messiah, it is finished. Old Testament ceremonial law, it is finished. Satan and sin, now they're no longer in control of the human race. I put my foot on his head. I fulfill the ancient prophecy of Genesis. I'm crushing his head on the cross through my death. It is a statement of victory when Christ said it is finished. 
If you were to look at a man in his death, you would think that that person was, was a failure, a loser. But I'll tell you today, my friend, Christ's death on the cross was an absolute victory as he willingly gave his life for the sins of humanity. And I'll speak to you about that today as this week we remember Good Friday. But there's a word that I'll use this morning. It is the word redemption. And I will tell you what's called redemption story. The word redemption, it, it has to do with buying back by payment of a ransom. To redeem something is to buy something back by making a payment. If someone kidnaps your child, and you've all seen the mysteries on television, someone kidnaps your child and they send a ransom, they say, a ransom demand, unless you give me a hundred thousand, a million, ten million dollars, your child will die. They come up with the ransom money and they make the drop and the child is freed because the ransom has been paid. If you've ever gone to a pawn shop and you give them your item, your television, your wedding ring, you give them some silver and they take it and they give you a small amount of money usually, but they give you a receipt so you can redeem or you can buy back your property. And if you went through an extremely difficult time and you had to, to hawk or pawn your wedding ring and you know it's a precious thing and you'll do anything to get it back and you go to the counter, whatever the price is stated, you'll pay it so you can redeem and get back your wedding ring. That is redemption story and that is what Christ has done on the cross for us. The Bible says in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man, Jesus, came to give His life as a, as a ransom for many. He came to redeem us. He came to buy us back. Now this morning in this morning's message, I want to present my message to you a little differently than I normally do. I'm going to use probably three or four times more scriptures than I would normally do in a message. This will be more like a Bible college lecture this morning because I want to lay in your life a foundation for the necessity of the cross of Jesus Christ. I want you to see that what Jesus did on the cross of Christ is not some option, is not something that was duplicated by other religions around the world, but what happened in the cross of Christ began in the mind of God before the world was ever created. We will go from the Garden of Genesis. If, if you don't really understand how the Bible fits together and it seems somewhat disjointed, I will take you from the book of Genesis. We will go through follow redemption story in the life of Moses. We will see Christ in the, as the Passover lamb that takes away the sin of the world. We will move to what's called the Day of Atonement, the most important day on the Jewish calendar of old. We will see that there were prophecies that predicted Christ's death on the cross hundreds and hundreds of years before he was even born. We'll see how Christ himself said, what happened to me is not an accident, but it is planned in the foreknowledge of God. As I tell you today, redemption story. Allow me this morning to share numerous scriptures with you as a basis of truth to know what you believe as a Christian. And for you that are seekers here this morning, to understand why the Christian way is presented as an exclusive way to salvation. Why Jesus Christ would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, no one comes to the Father but by me. And it is because of the, what I will share with you this morning that will help you understand the basis of the Christian faith, the grounding of the Christian faith, and what offers you the hope of eternal life only in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I tell you today, redemption story. I want you to follow these scriptures on the screen this morning with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. And I will tell you this morning that redemption story began before time. Before Genesis 1-1, before the earth was created, before there was a universe, the pre-existent God had redemption story in His mind. 
1 Peter 1.20 says that God chose him or God chose Christ as your ransom long before the world began. It was in the mind of God that Jesus Christ, the Son, would come down from heaven and be born of a virgin and would live a perfect life and give his life as a sacrificial offering for the sins of humanity. I tell you this morning, Christ's death was not an accident. Christ's death was not a mistake. It was not because the Roman soldiers were too powerful for him. It was not because he fell prey to the Jewish leader's strategy. No, it was God's plan to save mankind from the beginning. And God's love is so demonstrated on the cross that the very Creator left heaven and came and gave His life for the created. You see, God made you different than He did angels. He made you different than He did animals. You are created in the image of God. And that does not mean that God is six foot tall and balding. It simply means that you have the stamp of God in your spirit, somehow in your, the capacity of your soul to, to reason, to have emotion, to have expression. You are created with the stamp of God in your life, and you're different. And God knew that when He told Adam and Eve to stay away from one tree in the Garden of Eden, He knew that they would fall, and He knew that they would be to be redeemed back are bought back from the power of sin. Now join with me as we find redemption's beginning in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 16, God had and God still has a standard of righteousness. It is the utter arrogance of the secular American mind today that believes we can do whatever we want to with no consequence. The Bible says that one day God will, give it, will cause us to give an account before our lives. One day there will be a judgment day. One day there will be a day of reckoning on this earth. And my friend, the Bible presents a God who is independent and has the right to make the rules and the laws and the standards. We can ignore them. We can pretend they're not there. We can be defiant against them. But the Bible says one day we will submit to these. It began this standard in Genesis 2.16 when the Lord commanded man... Instead of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, listen, you shall not eat, for in the day of eat you eat it, you shall. You shall die. Now I ask you this question, when Adam and Eve ate from this tree, did they cease to exist? No, they did not give up their, the breath of life at that moment. You read their story and they talked with God and they hid and, and, and later on they had a child and a child killed another child. So what did it mean, the day you eat you shall die? This word death means a separation. And it is the most pivotal moment in mankind's history prior to Christ coming to this earth is when man was separated from God. When man chose to eat from a tree that God had simply said, don't partake of that tree. And there was a separation that began from God. And it was manifested by a precursor when you die in this physical body. In Genesis 3 verse 4, the consequences of this disobedience were and are devastating the lying devil said, this serpent, you will not die, for God knows your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. She took of the fruit. She gave some to her husband. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 7, at that moment. At that very moment, their relationship with God was permanently changed. Their eyes were open, and notice, they suddenly felt what? Shame at their nakedness. And they sewed fig leaves to get together to cover themselves. 
I'll suggest to you, my friend, sin had consequences and still has consequences. Its consequences are eternal. And I want you to see this idea of this covering of their failures. It is a picture of man's futile attempt to cover himself for his wickedness in the sight of God. A fig leaf is a picture of man's works that cannot save. It is the picture of empty religious tradition and empty religious acts apart from Christ. It cannot save you. In verse 17, the consequences. You see... I will suggest this morning that everything else you read in the Bible is understood from this point. Everything else that God does in the pages of Scripture is to restore the relationship that has been destroyed so that you might enjoy God forever and ever and ever. And the rest of the Bible from Genesis until the end of the book of Revelation is man's struggle with what happened right here. In verse 17, the Bible said that, Adam, you listened to your wife and you ate from this tree. The ground is cursed. You'll struggle to scratch a living from it. You are just beginning now to understand the consequences of nationalized health care. As the taxes begin to come out and you see what you will pay and you see the, as Americans' health insurance goes down, as you see businesses that lose, go out of business. Some of our largest companies said it's going to cost us hundreds of millions of dollars. Where do you think that's coming from? You're going to suffer for it, friend. But it's a part of the curse. It's not from the Democrats. It's a part of the curse when we begin to suffer the difficulties that are in this life. Verse 19, by the sweat of your brow, you'll have food, you return to the ground. And in the midst of this judgment, I want you to see in verse 21, it is the most amazing expression of the love of God that is heretofore mentioned in Scripture. It said God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Now listen, he didn't go to Dillard's and buy a fur coat. He didn't go to Nordstrom's, he didn't go to Kmart, he didn't order it off the internet. An animal lost its life for each of them. And more than likely, it didn't have buttons and zippers. More than likely, these skins, they had to hold upon themselves. They had to reach out. They had to accept and They had to embrace it. Listen, in the midst of judgment came mercy. The fig leaf, your opportunity, you're trying to save yourself is not enough. There had to be a covering. And there's a biblical term introduced today. Help me, let me allow you today to give you some theological terms and understanding of the nature of God. It is the word atonement. The word atonement means to cover. The word atonement means that they would cover not just their naked bodies, but they were covering their sins so they could be reconciled to God. Now hear this, and this is unique to the Christian message. Why must blood be shed for sin? The Christian cross was a bloody experience. I would encourage you this week to try to rent or look at Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ. And once again, allow your heart to be gripped and stirred as you see how bloody and painful it was. Well, the Bible says, Leviticus 17, 11, Why must there be bloodshed for sin? Life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for your soul. It is the blood of an innocent sacrifice that covers your sin. Christ on the cross was an innocent sacrifice that met the righteous requirements of God to cover the sins of sinful humanity. Hebrews 9.22 says, For without the shedding of blood, say it again, there is no forgiveness unless there is the bloodshed of an acceptable sacrifice to God. You see, when sin entered the human race, Adam sold the human race to Satan. Satan became the God with a little g of this world. Colossians 1.13 tells us that Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of His Son. 
There are on this planet two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness that all of us were born into. The Bible even says that, that Adam introduced a sin gene that affected all of his descendants. Psalm 51.5 says, I was born a sinner. From the moment of my birth, from the moment my mother conceived me, I was born in the kingdom of darkness. You may be sweet, you may go coochie-coo, but within that child, listen, is the propensity of evil. Within that child is a descendant of death, and that child, though small, will grow. That child will die because of sin, because they're in the kingdom of darkness, because of the sin of Adam. And what Christ has done for us on the cross is He's made opportunity so we could live in the kingdom of light. And so that our life would not just be a few years on earth, but so that it would be eternal in the presence of God. Now, I want you to hear me today. Young people, hear me because you will not hear this taught in a psychology class. You will not hear this taught in a history class. You will not hear it taught in a sociology class. You will not hear these things on television unless you listen to a Christian-based television show. Much of religion that's presented today is a watered-down liberal view that strips the necessity of the cross from the language of its communication. I will tell you, my friend, what the Bible says today, that sin is what it made necessary that Jesus Christ to go to the cross. But it was not someone else's sin. It was your sin, and it was my sin. Allow me today to tie the whole Bible together for you. Why were young people being baptized in water today? That water symbolized a grave. It symbolized going into the grave, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of, of, of not only Jesus Christ, but of your resurrection as well. You see, because you will not live for just a short number of years, you will live forever. The question is, will you live eternally in the presence of God, or will your sins confine you to a literal place called hell? Someone say, praise the Lord. In Exodus chapter 12, redemption story moves from the Garden of Genesis, and it goes to the life of Moses. In Exodus chapter 12, the first Passover, historically... Israel's in trouble. There's probably a million and a half of them. They live in Egypt. They have been slaves for hundreds of years. They're the ones that built some of the, of the pyramids that still stand in ancient Egypt today. They were in slavery. They were in bondage. And what's going to happen in these next few verses I will read to you is a picture of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, Moses, God told Moses that each family must choose a lamb for a sacrifice. This animal must be a one-year-old male. And what's it say? With no defects. It must be perfect. Not just any sacrifice will do. It had to be a perfect righteous sacrifice. Look at verse 7. They're to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat that animal. What does that mean? They took a plant called hyssop and this little lamb, this sweet little lamb that when you see the dad took this lamb in his hand and he took a sharp knife and he cut this lamb's throat and it, And the life began to spill out from that lamb. You say, that's gruesome. The death of Christ was gruesome. Sin is violent. You cannot strip the violence of sin away from it. When you look at murder, when you look at rape, when you look at violence, when you look at devastating tornadoes and earthquakes that kill and maim, sin is behind it. Sin has a, has, a, has a violent effect that comes from it. And just as the sin is violent, listen, the death and the substitution comes in a violent fashion. They took that hyssop, they dipped it in blood. 
And they're standing in their home. Imagine you're in your house with your family and you kill this lamb. And you take some and there's blood that's dripping. You can smell it if you've killed a deer. If you've been around, so, uh, some, it's, it's, a, it's a smell to it. And the blood is warm and hot and they take it and they put it on the doorpost. And the sides and they put it on the top. Many believe in the symbol of a cross. Verse 12, on the night I pass over, this is judgment. I will strike down every firstborn. But look at verse 13. The blood on the doorpost will serve as a sign marking the house where you're staying. And when I see the blood, what will I do? I will pass over your house and there will be no judgment. Can I tell you, my friend, it is the same blood of Christ, the innocent sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world, that if you have believed on Jesus Christ, that blood has been applied to your life. If you have been buried in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that blood covers your life. So when judgment day comes, you will not stand before God and give an account for sin, but Christ will stand before you, and it's His blood that will shield you on judgment day. Someone say praise the Lord this morning. Listen, the perfect lamb, the blood, offered divine protection from judgment is a picture of Christ on the cross. The blood of the sacrifice has the power to protect you from the judgment of God. And it is no accident when John the Baptist introduced Jesus, he looked at him and he said, when Jesus was 30 years of age, Behold the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. How could a 30-year-old man be called a lamb? It was because this man would be the sacrifice that covered the sins that atoned for the sins of the people. The Day of Atonement. Let me paint a picture to you now. It was called the Day of Atonement. On the Jewish calendar, it was the most important day on their year. And here's how it worked. If you can imagine, there was a, a tabernacle that Moses had developed. God told him this on the mountain. And it was like a big tent. And in this tent, only the priest could go in what was called the holy place. They would make sacrifices. There was showbread that was there. There were candles that were burning, all of which had deep symbolism. But listen to this now. There was in the back of that tent a curtain. And that curtain was behind the curtain was what was called the Ark of the Covenant. Now get past Indiana Jones, but see the depiction on the screen. It was covered in gold. And inside that, that Ark that was carried on poles the literal Ten Commandments were inside of it. Aaron's rod that budded was there. But on top is a picture of two angels and their wings were covered. And notice above their wings there's a light that's glowing. That's not some just depiction in Hollywood. The Bible tells us that, listen, literally the presence of God would dwell over the mercy seat. And it was over the top of the mercy seat that the priest would go one time a year and he would sacrifice an animal's blood and he would take some of that blood and he would put it on the mercy seat. And that blood would atone or it would cover the sins of the nation of Israel for that year. But the problem is they would have to do it every year because the blood of goats and sheep cannot permanently atone for the sin of people. So once a year, this huge holy day, well, they're set apart to God because sin is that serious. The problem is we don't view sin as serious in America any longer. If you watch television, you see the sin of murder committed and it doesn't bother us any longer. We see the sin of adultery, the sin of fornication, the sin of homosexuality. Come on. We see the sin of, of blasphemy come out of the lips of people. We watch it in the national, uh, the NEA, the, those that are, uh, the national group that presents us art will take a, 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 a cross of Christ with Christ on the cross and immerse it in a, a jar of urine and call it art and free expression. They'll take a picture of the Last Supper and put 
dung, elephant dung on it and say that it's a work of art. And we're surrounded by this in the world that we live today and people ask God to damn this and God to damn that and there's nothing holy and sacred and people drop something and they say, Jesus Christ. And we live around this world and because God has not shown forth His judgment, it's the mercy of God that's withheld the judgment of God to this day. And the fear of God is so minimized in our world because we've not seen God judge sin in a way that we can understand it. And if someone as a Pat Robertson would dare call attention to the, to the, to the tragedies that's going on around the world in an increasing fashion and suggest that it's the judgment of God, he's attacked by the entire secular media. But my friend, sin has a consequence to it. But Jesus atoned for that sin. Hebrews chapter 9, I want you to move about a thousand years ahead from when that priest, when the ark and the Old Testament and Moses in the wilderness, to after Christ was crucified. These words were written in the book of Hebrews. When Christ came as the high priest, he entered the greater and perfect tent, not one made with man's hands. Look at verse 12. Christ entered the most holy place one time. He went behind the curtain. He did not take with him the blood of goats and calves, but his sacrifice was with his own blood, and by it he set us free from sin forever. It's what Christ has done for us. Matthew 15, verse 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last on the cross, and in Mark's gospel it says, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. What is that? It's, that? it's behind that mercy seat where that ark was. There was a curtain that was there. And I've already used my handkerchief once, so it's a little battered from the first service. But if you can imagine with me, this curtain separated even the temple in Jesus' day. And the high priest would go once on the Day of Atonement and went back there. But when Jesus died, let's do this. When Jesus died, that curtain is there. And with no man's hand, with nothing going on but the hand of man, when he said, it is finished... And the curtain was torn. What did that mean? It meant all men can, women can, children can have access into the very presence of Christ because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That no longer do I have to have a priest. No longer do I have to have a man go before me in the presence of God. No longer do I have to sacrifice an animal. But Jesus Christ has become my great sacrifice. That's what Good Friday means to you. That's why Christianity is different from Buddhism, why it's different from Mohammed. We're going to jump forwards in time now. And we're going to look at prophecies that begin to talk about the life of Christ. But we're going to have communion at the end of our service today. And we're going to remember His death, His burial, His resurrection. Here's kind of how we're going to do it. The ushers are going to begin to serve you now. But it's very important to me as I continue with redemption story that you stay focused on me. When you get that cup, I would just set it on the ground. Perhaps there's a, there's a little holder in the back of the chair. And I would just hold on to it as we continue down redemption story. And we'll take of communion together. Redemption story, these prophecies, there are literally dozens of prophecies. I'll give you four. The first one in Isaiah 53, it was written 700 years before he was born. Listen, the weatherman can't even predict a few days ahead what's going to happen. Now, I dare say I can predict the weather for July and August. It's going to be hot. But I don't know if it's going to be wet or dry. Because a few years ago it was dry. In the last few years it's been wet. I was in Mississippi last week visiting my family and one day it was supposed to be an 80% chance of rain.
And two days later, it didn't even rain. They can't predict it. 700 years before he was born, listen to the words of Isaiah. It's like Isaiah, the envelope of time, opened up. And he looked ahead and he saw tomorrow as today. He says, Christ, or he said, he took our sufferings on him. This is Jesus. He felt our pain for us. We saw his suffering and thought God was punishing him. But he was wounded for the wrong. Say it with me. We did. He was crushed for the evil. Say it. That we did. The punishment which made us well was given to him. And we are healed because of his wounds. We all have wandered away like sheep. Each of us has gone his own way. Now listen. But the Lord has put on him the punishment for all the evil we have done. Let me say it again and I want you to hear it. 700 years before the first Good Friday, the Lord put the punishment on Christ for all the sin that you've done. So I tell you today, friend, I don't care how bad you've been in this life. I don't care how many times you've sinned. I don't care how many times you've done. I don't care what evil thing you have done. I don't care if you've gone to jail. I don't care if you've committed a felony and you're on America's most wanted list and you've done it multiple times. The power of Christ is greater than your sin. And Christ can forgive you. Christ can redeem you. It is redemption story. Psalm 22, a thousand years before Christ was born, it predicted His hands and feet would be nailed to a cross. Think about it. Think about it. You that are just questioning. Last week we got a visitor's card from Satan. You're laughing. You're thinking, wait a second. Yeah, got a visitor's card. Gave me his address, something, 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 Satan.com. I love the devil. I hate Jesus. I hope he's here today. I hope she's here today. Because I want to tell you the power of Jesus is greater than the power of the devil. I want to tell you, on Easter Sunday, the God of peace crushed Satan under his foot. And one day he'll crush him under your feet. I want to tell you one day Satan is going to be eternally cast into hell. That the followers of Christ will live forever and ever and ever. And it is available for every person that's hearing me today. 700,000 years before he was born, a band of evil men encircled me. They pierced my hands and my feet. In Isaiah 50, that he would be beaten, Jesus, I offered my back to those who beat me. I offered my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. And Isaiah 53 tells us he prayed for people. 700 years, Isaiah saw Christ on the cross prayed for people who killed him. He willingly gave his life. He was treated like a criminal. Read this last phrase with me. But he carried away, come on, the sins of many people. And he asked forgiveness for those who sinned. Jesus asked forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 700 years before he was born. Jesus saw his death, and I'm just about done. Matthew 16. He saw his death on the cross as the climax of redemption story. Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus, a 33-year-old man, began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary. Can you say necessary? It was necessary. It was essential for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things. Jesus said he would be killed, but on the third day he would rise again. Now look at me eyeball to eyeball. Why was it necessary? Why was it necessary? 
It is because only a perfect sacrifice could atone for the sins of the people. See, a sheep, a lamb's blood was not enough. It had to be the blood of a man. It had to be like for like. And Christ came, born of a Virgin Mary. Somehow he was fully man, but yet he was fully God. And he lived a perfect, sinless life. And he died on the cross to be a substitute for your sin and mine. Aren't you? What, what word can I even say? If I were to tell you, aren't you glad, wouldn't that just be so puny? What words can we say? For 2 Corinthians 5.21, Christ had no sin, but God made him become sin. Christ had no sin, but God made him become sin. So we could become right with God. And I'll tell you something that I absolutely cannot understand. Jesus is on the cross. The Bible says he could have called legions of angels. They'd have rescued him, but he didn't do it. He didn't do it. But when somehow my sins were imputed to him, I'll be a little personal right now. When I was in my late teens, have every reason to believe my girlfriend had an abortion. When I became a Christian, I carried shame for 20 years. And I never would tell him because I've never felt worthy to come before God because I was somehow party for taking a human life. One day I realized the blood of Christ is greater, come on, to forgive any sin. The blood of Christ can wash me and cleanse me. And I don't have to have shame. I don't have to have condemnation. Jesus bore my shame. He bore my condemnation. Come on. He bore the guilt. He bore the stain. And He offers to wash me and cleanse me and make me white as snow. He became John Miller's sin. It's like when your hand was nailed to the cross, Mike, it was your sin. It was your sin, buddy. It was your sin, Jeff. It was yours. It was mine. And every drop of blood was shed for our forgiveness. Come on, give Him praise today. Well, not everyone will accept what I'm saying. The Bible predicted that. See, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What I have declared to you this morning in the last 35 minutes is redemption story. I have shared with you how you were held hostage by a kidnapper who lied to your great-great-grandfather, Adam. And your mom and your dad didn't have the money, and you didn't have the money to get out of the predicament. But Jesus Christ ransomed you. He redeemed you, and He offers you the potential to be brought back to Christ. So what does redemption story mean to you, my friend? It means that Christ has offered you the gift of eternal life. It means that Jesus Christ has made a way so your sins can be forgiven. See, what He did on the cross is finished. But you and I must personally embrace what Christ did. It's like Adam and Eve when God offered those animal skins. They had to take them to cover their skin. And my friend, by faith today, I want to give you the opportunity to put your trust in what Christ did on the cross for you. See, the Bible says, It was to as many as received Him, to those He gave the right to become the sons and daughters of God to those that would believe on His name. So I ask you today, do you need God's gift of eternal life? Are you here today and you say, Pastor, I need the forgiveness that can only come from God. See, every one of us, my friend, are guilty in the eyes of God. Every one of us are a sinner. But there's a Passover lamb that was slain from us. So when the death angel comes one day, 
God's judgment will avoid us. The day of atonement has already been lived out for the believer. Jesus Christ did what no human being could ever do. Jesus Christ accomplished what a lamb couldn't do. But it's up to you now to make a step to Christ. I did that. I was raised in church. Thank God for my Methodist heritage. I was taught John 3.16 by Julia Guy, my Sunday school teacher. She said, in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. On August 15, 1976, 34 years ago, in a Navy boot camp in Orlando, Florida, it became real to me. And I realized that going to church every once in a while was not enough. Doing a few good deeds was nothing more than the fig leaves of Adam and Eve. I needed the forgiveness that could only come to Christ. And I humbled my heart and I turned my life to follow Christ. That day I said, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. And I commit my life to you. I wonder if you're here today and that's a step that you need to make. You need to commit your life to Christ. It's a courageous step. Christ paid the price. But you must, my friend, have the courage to follow him. If you're here today and say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me this morning. I want to give my life to Christ. For some of you, it may be that you've never done this. But I believe there's many people in this room today, on this Palm Sunday, this Sunday before Easter, who are not where they need to be in Christ. And today's a day where you need to get right with God. If that's true in either one of your cases today, and you say, Pastor, I need to get right with God, I want you to lift your hand real quickly. I want you to do it now. We're going to receive communion. Who's here this morning? Say, Pastor, pray for me. I want to get right with God this morning. I want to know Christ is my Savior. I want His forgiveness. Anyone this morning? You say, well, I don't have to raise my hand. It's because if you don't have the courage to make a step in a place where people will clap their hands, you'll never do it in the world tomorrow. Because following Christ is not like going to a movie where you catch the experience and then you're on with your life. Following Christ is a step that follows you for the rest of your life. I'll ask one more time and we'll receive communion. Are you here today and say, Pastor, I need to get right with God. I want you to pray for me. Lift your hand real high this morning. God bless you. Everybody say, God bless you, dear. And God bless you too, dear. Anybody else this morning? I need to get right with God this morning. God bless you. I saw your hand. Give him another hand if you're able to this morning. God bless you. Come on up here. I want someone to, I want you to take communion with me this morning. Come on up, you that lifted your hand. You that lifted your hand, come on up. I'm going to have someone stand with you. Come on, give him another hand if you're able to this morning. Come on up, dear. We're going to stand with you. I want you to bring your cup with you when you come. You that lifted your hand, I want you to bring your cup with you when you come. Making steps to Christ. I want a couple ladies. They're going to stand with you right over here. You see, this is just a stage that was built by men, but it's an area that was dedicated. God bless you, dear. There's probably several men that need to be here. I want some Christian ladies to come and just come and stand with these dear girls this morning. And I need some communion too, Usher, if you can help me out this morning. I need, I need communion this morning. You know what? Christ paid the hard price. He did the hard work. What we're doing by standing in this altar today is simply saying this, Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead. I believe you're alive today and I believe you're coming again. And by my presence in this altar today, I'm saying I want to follow you for the rest of my life. And I want to tell you now, dear, the angels in heaven are rejoicing. The Bible says angels in heaven rejoice over more over one person that turns to God than over 99 people that don't need it. And I want to tell you, God is smiling at you because He knew you before you were ever born. It's the amazing thing. God knew the life that I would live, and He he died for me anyway. So we're all going to say this prayer together. Ladies, I want you to say it. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. I don't understand it, but I'm grateful for it. 
I need you to change my life. I need you to take my guilt. I need you to take my shame and give me a brand new start. Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins and that you rose from the grave and you're alive today. So will you forgive my sins and come into my life and be my Lord and Savior? I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Now see, that's just like a gift on your birthday. Someone could have bought you the gift, which is what Christ did 2,000 years ago, but you know when it becomes yours? When you make a step to take it. And that's what you did today. We're very proud of you. After communion, one of our pastors is just going to give you some information. Any of these ladies will talk to you if you want to talk to them a little bit more because this is the first step. Put the scripture of Matthew on the screen. We'll receive communion together. You just kind of hang right here with me. Jesus Christ, the disciples did as Jesus told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. Isn't it amazing? The day before crucifixion was Passover. And as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. And then he broke it in pieces and he gave it to his disciples. And Jesus said, take and eat for this is my body. And that's what this little piece of bread represents. It reminds us that Christ bore a death and pain for my life because he loved me and because he wants to forgive me and cleanse me and give me a brand new start. And I remember it this day. Lord, we ask you to bless the bread today. Might the Holy Spirit bring us to a greater level of revelation and understanding about what you're doing in our life at this moment and what you did for us thousands of years ago and what you're going to do for us in the future. We remember it, Lord, and words cannot express our gratitude. I pray that miracles, Lord, would happen all over this place as we partake of communion in Jesus' name. Let's partake of the bread together. Amen. We continue reading on the screen. And Jesus took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them. And Jesus said these words, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. And that's what this cup represents. It represents the death of Christ. But you know what else it represents? He's coming again. Because we're not serving a dead Jesus. Our Jesus is not on that cross and he's not in that tomb. He is alive. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the Bible says he's at the right hand of God praying for us at this very moment of time. And one day God the Father is going to say, go get your bride. One day he's going to say, go get all the believers. And the Bible says this. It says that the graves are going to be opened. The dead in Christ will rise. There's going to be a trumpet sound. And we're going to be caught up in the, in the air to meet the Lord. Now listen, that's a powerful day. And we're looking forward to that great day as we take communion today. You see, Jesus crushed Satan's head, and that same Bible promises us that we're going to crush him under our feet one day. So, Lord, today we take this cup of victory, and we give you great thanks today. We just pray that the Spirit of God would come to us, not only in forgiveness, but we pray it would come to us in power. This day with cup in hand, we forgive people that have sinned against us. Just as we need forgiveness, we give it. We, ask, we forgive today everyone that's hurt us, lied to us, abused us, abandoned us, taken advantage of us. We forgive them today, and we bless them, and we pray, Lord, as you bless this cup, in Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Someone say praise the Lord. Hey, it was a great day, wasn't it? 
All right, listen, here's how we're going to close. Ladies, when I get done, one of our pastors is going to give you something. These ladies will might want to talk with you and kind of help you for the next step. We're going to sing one song together, and then after that song, you'll be free to go. Don't forget, we've got the meal now. Let me encourage you. Come back, hang out in the cafe, eat outside, take it home with you. But uh, we're going to have a, we would love to invite you to our fellowship today. It's for missions. We encourage you to be as generous as you can. God bless you today. Let's all stand to our feet. We'll sing one song, and then you'll be free to be dismissed on your own. Sing it today. Oh, how I love it.